Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. And once again, the folk musician we are talking today is not under the radar, but very excited to have Amy Ray of Indigo Girls on the podcast today. We got to talk at Brandy Carlisle's Girls Just Want a Weekend, which happened, when was it? Like, oh, it feels like years ago. It was in February down in Mexico in the Riviera Maya. Before we get into what we talked about, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love traditional roots music, she wants you to check out Tina and Her Pony's album Champion at tinaandherpony.com or wherever you listen to music. Once again on the podcast, we're trying something new out where uh, after Amy Ray's interview, I hope you stick around as we uh, want to introduce you to a great Portland, Oregon singer-songwriter, Jeffrey Martin, who's very emotive um, uh, with his vocal delivery and uh, just a a lovely guy. Uh, We'll get to him coming up in just a bit, and I'll play you a a clip of his later on in the podcast so you can uh, hear what you're in for conversation with Amy Ray was very interesting. Um, we kind of got right into it talking about her connection to the South. And I got to say, I did kind of mess up my recording. So I will tell you um, how the interview started. We were also talking about the Confederate flag and a uh, really interesting conversation about her um, her sense of style in terms of like her, her fashion choices over the years. Um, it's yeah, it's really interesting conversation. We started talking about, you know, her connection to the South. And so the thing that didn't get in the podcast, because I messed up, she said uh, the South is in her DNA, that her family came over as indentured servants in the 1600s to Maryland. And then they traveled down through Kentucky and into the South. They were preachers, street preachers is what she said, and they gave out pamphlets on the street. That's basically what that means. And she uh, told me about this great memory of her great-great-grandparents. They had a candy wagon, and her grandmother used to tell her about the story about the candy wagon, which I can imagine, like, if your grandmother is telling you when you're a little kid that your family, like, owned a candy wagon, I would tell all my friends. Let's be honest. I would totally brag about that. Uh, Amy Ray's latest solo album is Holler, put out in September. Also, Indigo Girls will be putting something new out. They're currently working on a new project. In the meantime, though, let's listen to a track from uh, Amy Ray's Holler, which is quite good, by the way, kind of hearkening back to those traditional folk instruments. Um, This is a song called Dad Gum Down, and then we'll get to our conversation with Amy Ray on Basic Folk. I'm just, I grew up in a really like just regular suburban kind of environment, you know, and mm-hmm. 
My dad was a doctor. He had kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps and was in the Navy and they paid for his medical school. My mom went to Emory University and, you know, she was from a very poor family, but she got a full scholarship because she's really smart and met my dad there. They got married and they went to Guam in the Philippines and had my sisters and came back. And by the time that I was born, it was like he was finished and paying off his loans. And by the time I was five, we had moved out of a house where I, all the kids were in one room together to a house that was just like a suburban house, you know, yeah. across from the high school. Wait, how know? old were you when that happened? I moved when I was six. So I yeah. lived from that house from one to five. And so then, you sh how many siblings do you have? So I shared a room with my two sisters and my little brother after he was born. And then we moved out of that. That's what everybody did, though. This was like yeah. the 60s. You know, when you yeah. were starter home, all the kids shared a room, and then you moved, you finished paying off your loans, and you moved into a bigger house, you know? Yeah. Like when you're, when you're a child of a doctor. So then I just grew up normal, like really. My dad and mom were like super conservative and very thrifty people, and so we didn't have like an extravagant life at all, all. I mean, we didn't know that we had money, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I grew up very like public school, very modest kind of life. What kind of doctor was your dad? Radiologist. Yeah. He, he was more of a, he just chose a medical field where he would have enough time to do his hobbies. So he Which, felt like that. A fly remote control airplane, building things, chemistry, building anything. He could build anything. He could build a radio. He could build a bookshelf. He could build a boat. He could build a car. I mean, just like he was wow. just a man of many talents. And he didn't really want to work, but he's really smart. And he, he just chose, like, I chose radiology because I didn't think I'd be as busy and I didn't think I'd be on call as much, right? <laughs> you know, it's so funny, so practical, right? Because he really wanted to be a chemistry professor. But he didn't, he wasn't, he knew he wouldn't make enough money. Mm. And he had grown up so poor and he was like, I'm just going to provide for my family, you know. But my dad's passed away now, but um, they were really conservative. We went to church like all the time and um, I loved it. I loved church. I went a lot. I went to Bible school and youth group and choir and Wednesday night supper and I just really loved it. And then when I was about 18 or so um, and just went off to college, I, that kind of, I still kept going, but not as much. Mm hmm coinciding with my coming out and everything too. So yeah, but it was kind of a conservative upbringing and, but with an emphasis on community service, my parents are really generous people, hmm. but they were conservative, you know, so it was kind of like a thing, but they were really into like tithing and giving back to your community. And my dad yeah. was always giving everybody money and sending other people's kids to college and support, you know, basically like was the patriarch of like my whole family and all my cousins. And we, there were a lot of rough times with his siblings and my mom's siblings. And so he kind of spread his wealth out to everybody, mm -hmm. which is kind of how I learned basically just to be an activist, I guess, but in my own, on my own terms, really. So I wanted to talk to you about the Confederate flag. Oh yeah, that's um, right. The South Confederate flag. So, okay. uh, so I mentioned earlier, I'm from suburban Massachusetts. It's a town called Walpole and our local sports team is the rebels. I really? Don't, I don't live there anymore, but they used to like, up until when my brother went to high school in like the early 90s, they used a Confederate flag on the uniforms and Dixie was like the fight song. And like, oh, that's not the case anymore. But right. There's still this like kind of weird allegiance to that mentality in a town that's like 20 miles south of Boston. Um, huh. So I wanted to know what it's like around you in northern Georgia and how do you feel about the Confederate flag and yeah. why people won't let that symbol go? You know, it's kind of, it's a weird thing because it's in like your DNA and stuff. And if you're a white person and, um, and sometimes if you're African-American too, and you grew up in the South, it's a weird thing where it's just ingrained. And, you know, when you talk about the war in the South, you're not talking about Vietnam or World War One or World War Two or Korea. You know, they're always talking about civil war. Mm. It's like still the thing that like sits in everybody's brain. Yeah. And even me, I don't, you know, who knows why, but we grew up with the Confederate flag being like just part of your life, you know, and your t-shirts and Leonard Skinner and Allman Brothers. And it mm. was all like this. And you didn't associate it with anything hateful. You thought it was a, like a pride symbol of, of being Southern. And then as you get older, you, you learn the history of it and what it means. And, you know, you learn about Reconstruction and you learn about, you know, everything that happened after the Civil War and and in early 1900s and 1920s and 30s and bringing back all the Confederate symbols and stuff as a reaction against what they thought when when the black communities were getting more power and 
and sort of learning how to work the system to benefit them, work in a good way, I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we learned that and then we had to like come to terms with it and divorce ourselves from that, people that, that knew that it was the right thing to do. But even for someone like me, that was hard to do. And I'm like as left-wing as you can get, <laughs> you know, like, and I even had a hard time, not with getting rid of the flag, but when, when people talk about, you know, um, monuments or the carving on Stone Mountain going away or whatever, there's a part of me that just, the history of the South, I'm such a history buff that I'm just like, do we really want to, I know it's the right thing to do, of course, because I'm a, I read, I've read like every book I can get my hands on about the civil rights movement and the history of everything about racism. But I know if inside me there's something, then I know that the people that are around me that don't even care about that kind of stuff really don't, don't care about reading a bunch of books or educating themselves. They, they just want to be where they are, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's like a thing where they feel like it's taking their pride away or it's like goes back to the carpetbaggers, you know? It's like Yankees coming down to tell us what to do. It's, it's like you have to approach it the right way because the white South that's conservative and, and maybe reactionary and racist, they don't like that thing where they feel that they're fetishized for being dumb and not knowing, mm. you know, how to write or talk. or So they kind of bristle at any person that comes to them and tells them what to do, and that's going to include something about the Confederate flag. So you really have to, like, look at it differently and, like, realize we need to, like, understand where these folks are coming from and work from that perspective to get rid of these symbols and these monuments because they have felt that, you know, they have a legacy in their minds and their families' minds of being beaten down, like gone with the wind, you know, and they think their land was taken from them and they think that they were, you know, punished for being white Southerners and losing the war. I mean, it's still in people's, like, family histories. And so they can't, let go of this, you know, and it's like the, for me, you know, my friends that are in that situation, I just try to look at it like just, you know, think about like Hitler, think about, you know, if, if you were Jewish and you had, you know, swastika flags in everybody's front yards. I mean, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. like weird. Right. Totally and weird. like, that's just what, that's what this is. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a hateful symbol. So look inside your better self, you know, and yeah. try to confront that. Because it's not going to happen if a bunch of people from outside come in and tell everybody what to do. It's going to happen when people realize truly inside their hearts what it means, you know, or have a friend who's black and they talk and the dialogue creates mm. this moment of like, oh yeah, this yeah. is, if this means all these bad things to you, I don't want to have it in my front yard, right? you know, but people that hang on so tight, it's, it can be crazy. I mean, it can be, it can all come down to that for people. Yeah. Yeah, it's like all the Confederate flags on those uniforms are all gone, but next to the high school in my hometown, this guy just refuses to let it go, and he put up a giant Confederate flag billboard, like, right really? by the football field. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's like, but that's just like, that's like, that is, the flag is just like this, it's a placeholder for what he really means, which is like, I don't want anybody to control me or tell me what to do. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That, it, it doesn't, it's not even about the flag at that point. It's just about stubbornness, right? And wanting to be respected. Can't we just get a new symbol that means it's, stubbornness? Yeah, I mean, that's tr <laughs> true. A picture of that guy on a flag. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's like, I, I find it to be crazy too. But, but, you know, the South, the beautiful things about the South are that it's like, because it's had all these troubles, it's the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Mm. And it's the birthplace of spirituality and faith-based civil, civil yeah. rights. You know, it's the birthplace of activism that's rooted in, in a belief in something greater than ourselves. And it's the birthplace of art and activism going together. And the land is beautiful. And people who have grown up with that land and understand the, what that is as part of the fabric of their life, it's, there's nothing like it. Mm. So there's all these great things. And, and it's hard, I think... I'm white, so I have a, a lot of privilege in that, and so it's easy for me to say I just want to stay here and I never want to leave. It'd be different for me if I was, you know, black and gay and I didn't have, like, a career that gave me resources and I was trying to live in North Georgia where I live. It'd yeah. be different because yeah. I, know, I know people that are in that position, and it's harder, and it's yeah. dangerous sometimes. So my feeling is I stay where I stay because I want to change it, you know, and I ha I'm in a position to change it more than some other people are because I have some safety 
right? So I just try to like, in my town, I try to do as many benefits as I can. I never play any money gigs in my town. Every gig I play in my town, all the money goes to something, That's great. right? And what that does is it starts building all these connections. So if I go play at the Baptist church where they typically hate gay people, the one in my town, they're very conservative, but I do a homeless benefit for them at their church for their organization, it's hard for them to be as hateful anymore. They have to give me a little bit of right. it. You know, they have to give it to me. And the same with my my daughter's dad, who grew up in the town. Um, his whole family is, like, from the area I'm in. So he's gay. And he has just never let anything stop him, right? Because he's, like, a white man with a good job, a CFO, and he's got a lot of privilege. So he's like, I'm going to use that. So he's he assumes the best about everybody, Right. He works at the, like, on Thanksgiving, he serves the meals. He's, like, constantly doing, like, all these things for the community helping place where we have, like, a, and the women's battered shelter. We have a lot of good little things going on in my town, and he works on all of them, right? Because, you know, then he's building, he's being an ambassador for gay people. Mm. So that's just kind of how we look at it in my town, which is, like, the small little group of liberal people are just inserting themselves into everything we can, and not in a judgmental way either you know you don't judge people you just it's like a pr campaign well in a way but we really mean it yeah it's not propaganda yeah you know it's like you know we want to be part of the community and we want the community to respect us we have to earn it Mm -hmm. period that's reality Hi, it's Cindy just breaking in here to let you know that coming up after the Amy Ray interview, we're going to be talking to the Portland singer-songwriter Jeffrey Martin, who I got a chance to meet recently and uh, watch him in concert. He played this really great song called Coal Fire, which is based on uh, the underground mine fire that is currently burning in Centralia, Pennsylvania. That's right. It's like an entire town that the underground is on fire. There's like 12 people that live there. Um, But that's coming up after the Amy Ray interview. So let's listen to Jeffrey Martin, and then we'll get back to our conversation with Amy Ray on Basic Folk. I read a story about the coal fire It burned for 80 miles underground Under rivers and across the state line Without a flame, without a sound It burned a building and some fence poles When it come up from the dirt into the sky And when they interviewed the town folks They said that hell was on the rise I'm looking out the window While you are sleeping I'm scared out of my mind, oh no I feel that fire creeping Everywhere I go Always burns down Everyone I love is trying to figure me out And everything I knew I buried underground Underground So to completely change directions, I was wondering if we could talk about your fashion, your clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Which might seem like kind of a weird pivot, but you, to me, you've always seemed like a incredibly sharp dresser really yeah totally like it's it's up today (laughs) well we're in mexico so i mean your image is part of the indigo girls and your solo career like i felt like your image your fashion image in particular showed that there's more than one way to dress as a woman and even though it seems like kind of a frivolous thing what has been your relationship to fashion and do you think you've used it as part of your activism um yeah totally i mean it's you know it's gender it's, it's fighting the gender binary, right? Yeah. Um, well, I love clothes, and I love, like, creative clothing, and I love thrift stores and vintage stores. So from the time I was in high school, I've always, like, gone. And, and I loved, like, the punk rock scene and the new, new wave scene. And, I mean, I've never been a fashionista because I'm not great at visualizing that. But I, I just basically figured out when I was younger that 
I wasn't gonna be able to wear dresses and feel comfortable and have them look good. So I started just like shopping in that Hot Topic or in men's departments or putting together something that worked for me mm. and not trying to be, you know, hemmed in and then trying to like find interesting ways of like having it be male clothing but with like a female sort of touch to it, right? Yeah, like you've always had long hair. Yeah, you know? yeah, so like, or just like bling, you know, like so you have a <laughs> male shirt but you get, you know, you have it studded with bling all over it or it's a picture of Marilyn Monroe or whatever, you know. Because mm -hmm. I, cause I don't look good in women traditional women's clothing I just don't I don't feel comfortable in it but I don't want to be completely in I don't want I want it to be more creative than that so it's just like punk rock formal kind of you know <laughs> yeah I mean you know now it's like since my kid was born it's hard to me to always get it together <laughs> I'm serious like it's just no time you know but yeah I don't know I don't I like tried to just um yeah find a space for myself so for a while, I would like try to do vest and ties, but in a way that was a little different, maybe. And you know, I did. I have like these western shirts. Like I'll find like what I do is I find some store or something that's off the beaten path, like some creative store, and then I really focus on what that designer is doing for a while. So like there's a store in Tucson where the woman there um, makes like western shirts but puts weird things on them, like unicorns yeah, and, I saw the and aliens. Unicorn. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know. Really nice. So I bought like a bunch of shirts from her and. You know, for a while, I just intermixed that kind of stuff. Or there was, like, a store in Seattle for a while that had, like, these really great punk rock kind of clothes, but they were sort of more formal. So I would buy, you know, things there, just a few things. You don't have to spend a lot of money and then use, like, thrift store stuff to kind of work into it. So, like, an interesting tie or belt or, like, mm. you know, some weird, like, I like to wear patterns that work against each other and stuff like that, you know, because it's you just, just more fun. learn just by trying things out? Yeah. 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 Well, also, you, like, you look at Mac. I don't, like, spend my time doing that, but if I'm in a dentist office and there's a GQ, you know, I'll look through you it. You look through the GQ. You know, yeah. or, like, punk rock people, I always, or, like, and, like, the store Hot Topic. Like, that's a great store to kind of, like, still look at as, like, a... You still roll into Hot Topic? Yeah, I tell them I'm shopping for my nephew. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. <laughs> yeah. If they look at me weird. But I also do it online. So every, because sometimes, a lot of times they won't have anything, but every now and then they'll have, like, this one thing that, like, rude put out and designed and it's like super cool right. and you'll only have it for like a week and you catch it you know like plaid bondage pants all right I gotta have those you know and then you just I'll wear them for five years you know I mean do you see yourself as like this fashion icon no god no no you know what I see myself as is someone that like says to women straight and gay that want to dress more masculine that it's okay to do that yeah you know and you can still be sexy and feminine and that like I know a kid I think she's 14 She's the daughter of a friend of mine, and, and she's just struggling with her gender, right? And she could be straight, but masculine. You know, mm -hmm. She's just struggling. She just she wears dresses, and she's just bummed about it. So <laughs> she, like, saw me, like, on some video. She'd never seen me. She saw me on some video for, like, July 4th or something, and I think I was wearing, like, a vest and a tie and some kind of cool pants or something. And she, like, told her mom, that's what I want to dress like. And, and it's not about me at that point. It's, like, her figuring out that that's okay. So... Then she came home and she went to, you know, whatever, off Saks, the, the outlet place that near my house or 30 minutes from my house and bought like some men's stuff. Because she said that to me, how do I find that clothes? Because she didn't even know. It didn't even occur to her parents because they don't know either. Because right. they're just struggling to try to figure out what's going to make her happy. Right. Right. They don't you get her to go to sleep. And they don't <laughs> mind her exploring in any way that she wants. Yeah. And so... I said, just go to the men's store at, like, Macy's or something, like, when they're having a sale. And, like, just do, do something that you've never... Don't try to buy women's clothing. Just try to do that and see what happens. And she totally, like, bought all this stuff. And I saw some pictures of her at a wedding, and it was, like, you know, a vest, a tie, you know? <laughs> like, she looked really good. Yeah. And her hair was, like, she chopped off the sides and made, like, a mohawk. And I was like, see? That's you cool. know, And that's, that's, like, uh, liberating, you know? It's not about fashion. Totally. Yeah, all. It's just like, how, how can she be what she is? Um, do you want to talk about church camp? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Where you discover all the, all the great things in life. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I want to hear about your experience going to church camp, because it seems like everybody I talk to, like I've had friends who go to fiddle camp and music camp, and I went to 4-H camp, and it was mm, a huge part. Cool. Yeah, huge part of my life. So I wanted to hear what it was like for you, and also like the singing at camp 
what that was like for you because when I go to an Indigo Girls concert, I'm like, this is summer camp. And yeah. I don't know if it has anything to do with that. Uh, it probably, I mean, for, for me it does. Uh, Emily, I don't know if Emily went to church camp. You can ask her about it. Because she was more in a liberal, her dad's like a liberal theologian. I'm more of like the Methodist, Southern Methodist church camp girl, you know. <laughs> I went to a camp up near where I live, actually, for four years, Camp Glisten. And I went to another camp called Camp Westminster. But Camp Glisten was my real formative, like, regular summer camp. And then I, we also did church camp with my youth group. So I went all the time. So we called those, like, youth retreats, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it just, they were really intimate. So I had a real problem with, like, authority, you know, and I would I really questioned authority, and my youth counselors let me do that, you know, and they really let me bump up against them and stuff. And I had a, for a while, I had a youth minister that had been a chaplain in the Army, and he was, oh, wow. and, and he, he just passed away last year, and he was a very good friend, and he was probably one of the most formative people in my life. Wow. Because he watched me growing up and didn't try to correct me, but he was protect. I know he was protecting me. So when I went through like, you know, buying drugs from people on the streets or whatever I did when I went to church on Friday nights, you know, and I did all these, you know, that was my, that was my way of like being safe and experimenting, you know? So church camp was the same way. Like I would go to church camp and we would, you know, take a bottle of wine and like go in the woods and drink it, you know, or like talk about sex all night or, read forum magazine to each other, you know, and, and it's just like really like, but it was forum magazine. It's like a porn magazine. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and you read stories that people have written about like, and if at that time, you know, it was probably pretty soft, Yeah. but you're 14, oh, you know? And yeah. so you're com you're into your puberty and you're like sharing this intimate space with your girls in your bunkhouse and the boys too. And it's a safe space because it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know how to put it, but it's like just there's so much love and there's so much like good intention because the thing about Christianity that was so great for me then was like it, I truly was trying to learn what I thought was the gospel of Jesus, which was like all about love and non-judgmentalness. And mm -hmm. I truly was into the rebellion of Jesus as like an icon to me. I had a filter that sort of filtered the patriarchy out, you know. Yeah. I never thought about <laughs> good that. Good work. I didn't. I just yeah. was like... And then, and then I was a religion major, you know, so I studied mm -hmm. a lot of different faiths and, and realized a lot of things about the patriarchy. But, but so Jesus was like this thing for me that was more Southern and pastoral and sharing your gifts and feeding the community and sharing peace. And so church camp was like that too. And then we would sing, you know, everybody, my counselors always had guitars, always had a guitar like from the time I was 10 and the chords were really easy. So you could sing these songs like Pass It On or we'll, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love or like Kumbaya or Where Have All the Flowers Gone or Cat Stevens songs or Paul Simon songs. And a lot of songs I learned, like I have, still have my church book, which is just songs that are like Christian approved, I guess. You know what I mean? There's like a big <laughs> yeah, fish yeah. on it. But it's all by like Cat Stevens and John Denver and Carol King and, you know, it's all songs like that. And so you, that's what you do. You yeah. make crafts and you sit around and sing songs to each other and you put plays on. So I went to, also went to choir camp, which was, oh, man. you go and oh, you learn a choir, like a musical while you're gone. Yeah. And was my it, choir director. Was it uh, girls and boys? Yeah. 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 And my choir director is like totally creative and I, I still keep in touch with her and she would like write these crazy musicals, right? Yeah. And we would learn those and then go back and perform at the church. And they were Christian and everything, but, you know, like, for a while, I was very, like, I was pro-life, and I was, like, really, like, conservative, even though I thought all about all this, like, rebellion stuff, right? Yeah. Pro-life was important to me, because there was, like, one year we had this youth minister that was terrible before the good ones, and he was, like, showing us, like, movies of abortions. It was terrible. Oh, wow. And I was, like, so shocked, because I'm all this, like, I'm into, like, pet welfare and baby welfare. Like, I'm into, like, taking care of the innocent, right? Mm -hmm. So it made me totally pro-life. And then, like, it didn't take but, like, a year for me to, like, realize that that was kind of, like, not right at yeah. all. there's propaganda. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I was mad at my church, at that church minister. He left at that youth yeah. minister. And so then we had the good one, and it, everything changed for me. Right. Yeah. But that's how influential church was for me. Totally. You know, but I was coming, I was starting to realize that I was different too. You know, I was a tomboy and, you know, 
And I really idolized like the older girls in the group and like church camp gave us a chance to all be together. So Mm -hmm. I got to be with like my, you know, three years older than me, tomboy mentor, you know, and I could watch and learn and I didn't realize what was happening in me, but it was happening, you know? Yeah. And, and it was like a couple of people that were really like influential. One of them died when we were young, like when we were like, I was like 17 Mm. and that was hard for me, but, um, but yeah, so it, church camp was, yeah, it was like the, the source for me of like a lot of what I am now. Mm, I get Exploring that. Exploring and mm. nature and freedom, you know, and rules just don't matter at all. Yeah. But in a safe space. Yeah, totally, know? totally. Um, seems like we're going to have to pick this up at a, another time. Oh, sure, yeah. Sorry, I'm long-winded. So. No, no, I mean, I've, I mean, I had, I've got a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about, so maybe like part two in the future. Yeah, 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 totally. Great. Totally. Thank you so much for doing yes, this. Yes, Appreciate you. it so much. I want to say thanks to Amy Ray for talking and uh, being so generous with her time and open to my questions. And I want to say thanks to uh, Angie Carlson for helping us set up the interview with both Emily and Amy on Basic Folk. If you haven't listened to Emily's interview, you should because it's really good. She's really great. Um, Okay, so moving on, like I said, we're going to be talking to Jeffrey Martin, who is a singer-songwriter from Portland, Oregon. His music is awesome. Um, My friend uh, recommended that I check him out. My friend Steve, he was like, will you do me a favor and listen to this? And it was like immediately I was sold on his music. It's really good. Uh, Actually, Jeffrey is the partner of Anna Tivill, who we've spoken to on Basic Folk. He is a former English teacher and just writes these incredibly emotional songs and just is a a really sweet guy. Uh, So let's get into our conversation here on Basic Folk with Jeffrey Martin. Uh, Well, this is really funny that we're in this little room. We're at the, what is the name of this place? The Charles River Charles River Industry Museum? Yeah. Okay. Museum of Industry, Museum maybe. Museum of Industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is a cool little place um, in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, which we were just told is the first factory in the United States. Right. Um, yeah, it's We haven't had cool. a chance to Google it yet to make sure, right. but... That's true. I do trust that guy. I can't Google it now because my phone is on airplane yeah, mode. Yeah. But Jeffrey let's Martin. Let's just go with it. Yeah, yeah. Let's, just, let's just go with it. Yeah. Jeffrey Martin is here uh, with me on Basic Folk. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, really big fan of your music for like whatever, uh, for like three for like weeks. three days now? Yeah, for yeah. three days. I've cool. been like doing a real a deep dive. Um <laughs> So I'm so glad we could talk. So uh, let's go back to talking about when you were younger, um, your family, your dad was a preacher. He was, yeah. Um, So tell me a little bit more about that and what effect that may have had on you and how how his work might have shaped you. Yeah. um, I think it's still shaping me, uh, I'm finding out. Um, But so when I was... Um, when I was in, I don't know how old I was. I don't remember actually, but my family, my dad and mom lived in Texas, um, for a while in San Antonio and that's where I was born. And then my dad, um, took a, or decided he wanted to start a church in Oregon, in Eugene and moved the family up to start a church when I was pretty young. And so most of my memories are in the Northwest and, uh, wrapped, how old were wrapped you? up in that church. Oh, like elementary school okay. in there somewhere. So my dad was a pastor until until I was about 19, I would say, somewhere around there. And it, I mean, that's where all my that's where all my music came from. Uh, my my earliest memories of like being hit by music, I guess, have to come from the church. They just there was there was a lot of music in that church, and I remember. Um, knowing the the players who would play every week and uh, what kind of feeling would you get from that music? Uh, I don't know. I just I remember feeling moved. It was it was. I mean, it's hard to separate in my mind the the spirituality of the faith aspect of things versus like just this the broader spirituality or the broader experience of being moved by music, which is a spiritual thing, I think. But I. Uh, 
I definitely remember that connecting with me from a really young age and wanting to like to be involved in some way. And so, so I was in middle school, I guess, when I started playing guitar sometimes at church. Um, and uh, what kind of guitar were you playing, by the way? What was I playing? Do you remember? Uh, it was a Fender. Um, it was an old. It was like you could buy like a two hundred dollar kit that was like a Fender acoustic with like a tuner and some tools for changing your strings. Did you get stuff. it at Kmart or something? It was from like Costco or some yeah, yeah some like crazy. <laughs> my mom got it for my dad for a birthday. He was like, no thanks. Yeah, he just he didn't really play it. As he he thought he would and he didn't. And I just loved it. Um, at the time, I was playing cello. My mom made each of us kids. I have an older brother. And a, and a younger sister, but she, um, we had to each pick an instrument when we were young, and so I picked cello. But as soon as I had that guitar around, it just felt so much more versatile and accessible than the cello ever did. And so it slowly, it, it spent less time with my dad and more time with me, and then I just finally took it over. And yeah, I really love this story of when you discovered that you were a writer according i read in your bio it was like a fateful night where you listened to reba <laughs> mcintyre's the nights the night that the lights yeah. went out in georgia on repeat where you had like you kind of yeah. got a sense of like that's what you were meant to do be a songwriter and be a musician but it also seems like something that you buried and ignored for a long time is that true yeah um and not not because I I mean my parents were really supportive of every like crazy idea I had growing up they've always been but I just I didn't have any examples of songwriters in my life like that I knew like personally yeah knew, and yeah. so when I felt moved by that music I didn't I didn't that didn't translate into if I'm moved by this then maybe I should look into this as something to do mm. uh, until much later. I get asked though, because you asked me earlier about my dad being a pastor. It's that's just a huge question for me in terms of how it influences my music mm. and my writing. Because my own ideas of God and my own ideas of church and institution and spirituality and there, there's that's a humongous story in my life. I mean, the the very short version of it is that my my parents were revealed to be. Uh, normal broken people when I was in high school to the church like they were going through some issues trying to sort out some stuff in their marriage and unfortunately um, a lot of the church was not comfortable with seeing their pastor have problems oh. and so a lot of I kind of I, I in my mind my life is separated my young life is kind of this nice uh nice idea of church and church families and like everything working really well and then when the real world came in a lot of people left because it was it, it got tough and the church kind of fell apart at that point mm. and i got really bitter toward any institutions at that point church or otherwise mm. and like thought wow. if you put enough people together in a place then they're gonna fuck it up and like and i've and i've mellowed on that since but it's like been a, it's just a really big question for me but um but it's funny to have people after shows or sometimes people will write and say like i was listening to your song and 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 they'll have these ideas that they'll kind of chase out um about my own ideas of god or my own ideas of church based on stuff that they hear in my music and i uh, and i've and i've gotten a lot more sensitive to that over the years of like being careful how i how I structure things in the writing because I don't want to I love having a a private interior life mm. that that people don't can't put their finger on yeah and uh so now if I do write about those things or that world I do it in a intentionally like I don't show all my cards yeah I feel like I don't know so in 70% of these interviews, I bring up Tori Amos. <laughs> so Tori Amos, her dad was also a minister. I didn't know is also Yeah, a minister. Huh. And she has so much religious imagery mm -hmm. in her music, but will never in an interview talk about her faith or her mm -hmm. spirituality or what she practices. Yeah, She'll just like flat out be like, no. I don't talk about yeah. that. So, That's great. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. There's an example for you. Um all right, let's talk about 
teaching, a big part of your story is teaching. You were a high school English teacher. Yeah. And you didn't love it at first? I actually, I did love it. I didn't love the school of of it, like becoming a teacher at first. It was a big gamble. Um, I, I, I got my undergrad in English. And didn't know what to do with it. I just, I just had fallen in love with writing and mm. literature. And a couple years after I, I got that English degree, I decided like teaching sounds interesting, so let's give it a shot. And it was a big roll of the dice, kind of, because I had never taught. I never hung out in a classroom, and and I found grad school to be theory based and like a lot of like what if situations and. But as soon as I started teaching for real, as soon as I was thrown into the classroom, I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with mm. a lot of what, what, what we were talking about in grad school. And really, it's just about connecting with, with young people in real ways and seeing what they bring out of that situation. And I just loved, I loved it a lot. So what was the decision behind you leaving and how did you finally do it? Ugh. I, I took a job teaching um, full-time at a, a high school north of, of Eugene, Oregon, like a pretty rural district, um, or a smaller school at least. And um, But at the same time, like right when I took that job, m music stuff started taking off in a good way, not, not like hugely, but it was the momentum of it was building, and I was touring a lot more. So I thought, I'll try this full-time teaching thing, and... I'll tour in the summers and the breaks and see if I can manage both. Because I knew some teachers who were musicians also. And and that first year, I just about died. It was way too much. And I was teaching all week, and then I'd like fly out or drive out on the weekend and play shows all weekend and then get back home just in time to show up on Monday and teach again. And I remember once I was flying back from L.A. Um, one weekend, grading essays on a plane that I had to return to students because the semester was ending right when I was getting back. And mm. I was just, there was literally not enough time between being on the plane and when school was going to start the next morning to get all these essays graded. And I just thought, like, I'm doing a disservice to my students. And I'm also, like, I don't know, I kept getting sick and I was just tired all the time. And so the next year, I decided that I needed to scale back on the music, um, to be fair to my students and then that that's really what just like broke a piece of my heart and, and it just I was saying no to a lot of stuff in the in music and I just couldn't do it anymore I, I tell people now that if if I if music wasn't a thing in my life I would happily teach until I died mm. I I loved it I loved I just yeah I think it was the first like noble thing I'd ever been a part of really in terms of like a job, music is strangely like s narcissistic and selfish and and lonely, and uh, it's also the opposite of all those things. But it's weird that they both exist. And and in teaching, it was just you're just there to serve young people, um, and if you try and do it in any other way, then they're just gonna beat the shit out of you. And like, I loved that about <laughs> it. Um. When I hear you sing, so Anna Tivill is your partner, yeah, and it's so funny because I can hear the I can hear you guys influencing she, each other. Oh, really? In your vocal delivery, that's cool. Um, so Anna's your partner, and you often often play together. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as much as we can, it's mm. getting pretty busy for both of us independently the last couple of years. But yeah. So how do you inspire each other's work? It's not a very big question or anything. But go ahead. <laughs> Take, take it away. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know anybody that writes like Anna writes. I, um, sh she's prolific and she's always writing something, whether it's a song or a poem or something that might turn into a song. And, um, she's much better than I am lately about bringing songs to me and saying I just wrote this or I'm working on this song. It just, it never, it just doesn't, it never doesn't floor me. It's just, it's so good and it's. And it's, I always have this weird mix of feelings of, like, this is so good. And, like, on the other side, feeling like, what am I doing? Like, why am I not writing as much as this right now? And, mm. like, I need to stop whatever I'm doing right now and go pick up a pen and start. And so in that way, like, she's always inspiring me to to write. Is there? You don't have to answer this question, but is there ever, like, a thing where you have to keep your ego in check or like between like, us yeah like between you're like my I? partner 
Just um, wrote this incredible song, and I haven't written in a while. Uh, maybe, but no. I mean, if she writes an amazing song, or if something, if she plays a great show, or she has some great opportunity, it always just feels. I mean, I just have immense respect for her as an artist, and so anything that happens to her is so well deserved that, like, I just—it's just exciting for me to see yeah. it happen to her. I do. I mean, all the time, absolutely. I wish Anna's so good at um, quietly observing other people's lives and then writing about them in ways that are like gentle and full of empathy, no matter what the character is. And usually, it's a pretty broken character in her songs. Like she loves, she she loves writing about people that have made some pretty terrible mistakes and finding the beauty in in them still in their situation or their whatever. And, I do wish all the time that I could look at a scene or experience something in life and and come out of it writing about it in the way that she does. You know, absolutely. That's mm. that's like, but that's like a healthy jealousy I think to have. Yeah, yeah you yeah. would be like, like Jesus Christ. Yeah. If you didn't feel that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not humanly possible. Um, so your music to me transmits such wisdom and truth. Can you speak to your relationship with each, and how do you cultivate that in your music so dang easily? <laughs> um, my dad, I've always thought of my dad as a philosopher first, before before he's a pastor, or before he's a, he just he loves to he loves to like think about things, and he loves to think out loud, and from a really young age, he would ask me questions that were well beyond my years and I loved that about him and I feel like it instilled this kind of confidence in me to to be able to field those questions even if I didn't have the the big adult response at the time just the fact that my dad was saying like here think about this to me when I was in sixth grade felt really empowering and 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 also you know, all the music that I sought out and the songwriters that I loved, um, I'm really bored by people that don't have anything to say. Like, it's just, especially in songwriting, if it's if it's a different genre of music, that's different. But in the world of songwriting, if it's, if it's just going to be a rehashed, I don't know, love song or lost love song, it just, it just my mind kind of goes numb really quickly or something mm-hmm. and... Um, I've been saved by so many, so much music and writing in general. When when someone says the thing that I wish I knew how to put into words, and then that thing saves so my good. life literally, yeah. then I feel like that's the bar that I want to hold myself to when I write. You know, as a full time like touring musician, you're playing the same songs over and over and over and over and over, and I need to believe in what I'm saying to do that. You know, because I'm not an entertainer. Mm. There are people that are brilliant entertainers and I have a lot of respect for them and I am not I'm awkward and in my head too much and I just so I need to be able to sing songs over and over that I believe in I guess so that kind of like leads into my last question reading about you I found this line and you didn't write it it was in an article Mm. um, that you started out in music hoping for fame and I can't really wrap my mind around that. Where did you find that? Do you know? On the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I started. So, I mean, what does fame mean to you? Do you want it? What kind of career do you want? I don't want. I don't want that. Um, I think. Well, if I'm honest, I think like starting out when I was uh, when I was eighteen, nineteen, and in college, and just starting to like play songs out for people. Um, I loved the validation that came from someone saying that, that I did a good job or that sounded great or being known as like that guy who's playing guitar and writing songs. That felt good. I think that feels good to anybody. But the deeper I've gotten into music, the world of music, the more I've met people at, at all sorts of levels. And I and I rarely meet someone who is very successful, who's also extremely happy. And that's a bummer to mm. me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's... I feel like it's a lesson that can't be ignored, and it. I'm not. I would love to. I would love to be more successful. I would love to be continually more successful for the rest of my life and growing, playing bigger rooms and to more people. And absolutely, um, 
I also know that even at this very, very, very small level that I'm at now, there's elements of the music business side of things that compete hugely with my heart and mm. my writing and the reasons why I started doing it in the first place. And so I know that those things grow with the good stuff also. And I'm just cautious of it. Um, I don't know what I want to... I just want to keep playing. I mean, if people keep showing up to shows and I can pay my bills, then that's fine with me. I, uh, I, I already feel... I mean, I've done so many things in the last 15 years to make money. And a lot of those things were like really hard manual labor jobs. The the idea that now I I travel around singing my interior life for money is like <laughs> mind blowing to me, and I feel like such a jerk, really, for like the opportunity. And I just I don't I don't I feel like I'm already like I've won point. the lottery, and I don't. <laughs> I feel like such a jerk. <laughs> I do. I I was talking to my friend Mick Flannery on this tour we did recently, and he's a he comes from a similar world. He's a stonemason for a lot of years before he was a touring musician. And all of his buddies from back in the day are still just like ruining their bodies, doing this really hard mm. work. Um, and they give him like endless amounts of shit for, you know, the the life that he has now. And he's and he's just as broke as I am or anybody is, but he's he he feels similarly just like so grateful to be able to do this. So that's, that's mm. you know... I don't know what I want it to turn into. I just know that I, this is like an incredible gift and I'm having a good time where it's at now. So Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me in this strange little room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for having me. All right. Another successful episode of Basic Folk. Thanks a lot to Jeffrey Martin. Thank you to Amy Ray. And thank you for listening. Let's uh, also thank our sponsors. <clears throat> Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love hearing new artists, she thinks you will like the fresh sounds of McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean.co slash Basic Folk or on Instagram at McDean Sings. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy. Uh, also, thank you to Alex Stanton for doing our music, Alex of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople. Don't forget to review and subscribe to basic folk that would be a huge help five stars please thank you all right uh take it easy and we'll talk to you next week bye